I'm with Wayne for the midweek pod. Wayne, what have you been up to this week? I've been causing trouble, Ed. I've been wandering around. So I was saying it tongue in cheek, but I did get into a bit, bit of trouble, actually. So, yeah. you know, what most people are like when they watch United lose happens quite often these days. Still not as often as like smaller clubs. And we've got to keep reminding ourselves of this. We're still immense, immensely privileged that we're batting above the average of every club in England. Like the time when I dared to point out United have had financial difficulties because of the debt. And then some very fan <laughs> came at me and said, well, well yeah. your club's still in business. I'm like, yeah, but all things in context. Anyway, 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 I'm getting, within 20 seconds, I'm already getting off, off stride. All right, let's pull it back. So when most people watch United and they get upset after they lose, they'll like do regular things. Like they might have a few drinks, they might kick the cat. They might go and do something completely different the next day take the mind off it. I don't do that. I retreat into the history like normal, or re- the history of the club, and sort of try and indulge in something else that will make me feel better. On Sunday morning, I decided to go into Manchester City territory, which is actually northeast Manchester, which is Manchester United territory. Originally, we were the OGs in that area, so no matter what they, they try and claim, we were there <laughs> a few years before they were, so I'm not having it. Anyway, so I decided what I was going to do is go on a pilgrimage of all the older grounds and I put some up on my socials. So people who are listening to this, hopefully will have already seen it. If not, go and check on my socials on Insta and on Twitter. I've posted the the sort of media of this. So I went to Bank Street and Bank Street, the plaque is on a a house. So you can see that, but it's pretty much accessible. it, It can be missed. You know, you might have to drive past it a couple of times. But it's there. You can get out, take a picture of it. The next one, I went to see North Road. Now, oh, oh, by the way, there are no stadiums. Yeah. There's no pictures or anything like that. This is a, Bank Street is on a street across from the. I think it's Velodrome. North Road, or what used to be North Road, is on the back of Fujitsu. I yeah, think glamorous stuff across from the police station. Little industrial estate. Yeah. So, but you can walk onto it. It's like literally on the Fujitsu uh, Fujitsu building. On the big road, on uh, the big wall at the side, there's like a tiny little plaque. It's not an official plaque, but it's there nonetheless. And you can access it publicly. You can walk up there and get a picture and, and a little video of the surroundings, like I did in a post on Twitter. But the other one, so I, those are the two grounds that everyone knows about, right? Bank Street and, and North Road. Most people know. If you dig into United history, you know of those two um, that, that, that were there before Old Trafford. The one that people don't really know a lot about is, and I don't know how to pronounce it, it's either Kaylon Street or Ceylon Street, C-E-Y-L-O-N Street. So that was adjacent to the old sheds and the railway. Right, yeah. When they would finish their lunch break, they would go onto the field and play a game of football. This is before they got the finances to move to North Road. So it was literally just a playing field, and they went and played games against other workers, and, and so on and so forth. Um, so I went and took some pictures and videos there because I don't think that's really a place that's common in United history, right? I don't think a lot of people know about that. So I, I took some pictures and video. And the first, as you drive into the estate, I think it's uh, like Bellway Estate now. They, they bulldozed it and put a lot of not very nice houses on. Um, there's a little overgrown area that's obviously been concreted and then it's grown through again. So it's not the original patch of grass but it's the only greenery in the area and then you turn into the what would have probably been the pitch 
and that's all else is now. And we went in, so sort I of like took some pictures and videos. And as we pulled into the estate, first of all, there was a man like he was early on Sunday morning, early eleven. He was out in his pajamas wow. walking his dogs. I'm and not he surprised. Was very, you very doggy. suspicious Same. of what I was doing there, getting out of the car, taking pictures of. Well, in my normal demeanor, yes, obviously. Anyway, but in this particular circumstance, <laughs> going up to a bush and taking it's a picture odd. of bush, of the bush, as I say, the bush. Oh my god, edit that, please, if you can. Taking a picture of the bush, going around like that, and then he looked at me like, "What are you doing?" And I'm like, you know, muttering to myself quietly so I can get something for the for the video. And then I got back in and we we drove around to the the actual street and took a video get back in the car and just as we're about to drive off the guy comes out the in fact the entire family come out to the like the front of their house and they're like are you taking a video are you taking pictures and i was like no mate no proper like bricked it i was completely lied to him and and we drove off so i did get into trouble almost i would have been battered i had no chance in a fight with that guy and I was already feeling sorry for myself. I was like, please don't, you know, Spurs battered us enough. Should have just told him you're a writer and you're doing research for one of your books. It'd have been fine. I'm not that brave. I, I, I've been writing for 10 years. I'm still not brave enough to call myself a writer because it's so egotistical. So what do you do for a living? I'm a writer. Do you know what I mean? That kind of thing. If I said that to that guy. Well, you do put words on a page, which is writing. And you're someone who does writing. Yeah, so. by that token everyone in the world can do that so I, I could have done that but i feel like in that scenario that would have been a red rag to a ball because it might have been suggesting he couldn't write because he looked like the kind of person who would prefer to punish my brains in than than write anything ever again and so we made a hasty exit thankfully for you know my few thousand followers on social media and the 200 people who probably seen it that video now exists on social media even though i lied to his face and told him that it wouldn't if you had kicked your head in, the numbers you'd have got on those social media posts, they'd have been off the charts. Yeah, so I, think about that. I mean, yeah. I, it is a shame that I didn't, when you when you put it like that, because first of all, the sympathy. Second of all, I've been due a kicking. I think I've been due a kicking. So, it, you know what I mean? For it to come, it would have even itself out. Yeah. That might have been like another three or four <laughs> years that I would have been due another one. So yeah, but I didn't. So unfortunately, the kicking is still very good. Um, but it is what it is. Anyway, those things, uh, the pictures and the videos are on my socials, and it's it's nice because it is still nice, even though it is overgrown. The, the little I area of twenty grass, years ago, yeah. I think that at one point there were Newton Heath players, so um, it, it was nice no. and it made me forget about what happened against Spurs for a minute. You're not going to make me go over that, are you? Because I, I literally just forgot it. So. No, no, we we did the we did the debrief on that one, the heaping pile of dung that was that football match. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, in in interesting times at United, any drama happened the last week? We want to talk. We we spent the last two pods talking about Mason Greenwood and all of that. Yeah. But I suppose it's uh, we we've actually got the fallout now that United have um, confirmed that he won't be staying at the club, at least not this year. They've been typically non-committal about what exactly they mean so the contract and and uh, he will presumably be going on loan somewhere um uh, where to be decided there have been sort of links mm. with italy and turkey and the saudi league came out and said no too toxic for us which i was like lad lads 
In the same week that a report was published about uh, from Human Rights Watch, published about um, Saudi security forces massacring Yemeni refugees on the border. They were like, no, no, Mason Greenwood, too much for us. We can't take that one. Might damage our reputation. It's like modern football. Fucking hell. Mm, Was it not Gerard? I might have. This might have been like one of those like pretend quotes that gets amplified for, for no reason. That wasn't there a thing where Gerard had said that we won't, there's no truth to that. And all the <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> oh, rejoice because Gerard's got morals and like, well, oh, we, what? <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, yeah. it's it's to be decided. I, I, I feel that United have like botched every stage of this process. And difficult it is, it is. There is a kind of, you know, case study in here about how not to handle a crisis and how to make one of your own, which uh, United managed to do. Um, but somehow the next phase of it is to find the club or his agent will uh, and kick the can down the road for another year and try and work mm. out what happens in a year's time, I assume. I don't think so with this. I think it's too serious. I, I know where you're coming from because of the the nature of the way that everything's gone with this. I can understand what you mean. I don't. I think it's much too yeah. serious. I think they, that much was realised in that sort of five or six day period. We should say, incredible, incredible journalism. I know you you have already said it from Adam Adam Craft, and he was unbelievable with this to to force the issue and everything like that. There are some things, and I I will say them, even though they might not really be popular and they might go against. <laughs> no, no, uh, yeah, all opinions you. welcome. No, you're probably going to yeah. kick me. You, this is where the kicking is going to come. It's going to come from yourself. Now you'll you'll get. You will get a fly, and the kicking will come, and and it'll probably be somewhat warranted, um, in general and for this. Okay, so where do I? Because I've not commented. I, I've deliberately not commented, apart from originally at the start, where we're every you know, because everyone knew what their visceral reaction was to to what happened at the time, and then there was a criminal investigation, and I've hosted podcasts, I run my own podcast, I've talked to different people on different platforms and and always been conscious of the fact that there has been that investigation. First of all, the, the criminal one and then the internal one from United and I'd never thought it was wise to really come out, apart from the ori- original point of obviously what he did was terrible. There's absolutely no defence for it and I didn't, or wouldn't have ever felt comfortable with him playing for United again. That much I would hope that anyone who would follow, not for what my opinion counts on it, that anyone who cared about what I thought about it would realise that from knowing who I am as a person anyway. It's a sensible and rational thing. The thing with United and and the way that it's gone with United, I do feel you said there that it was a case study how not to deal with something like this. But really the, there aren't that many case studies like this because of a because of the nature of the incident and b because of the profile of the way that it first of all the way that it's been put onto united's lap like the same with the takeover and, and we'll probably see that at some point where united but, and we've talked oh, about this sure, before, yeah. united are often yeah. put into the perspective of being a political vehicle by the press in a way that other club in the way that other clubs aren't right so and they've dealt I'll, I'll try and be as brief for this i don't want to turn it into a massive monologue for, for many reasons i don't want to do that and i know that i tend to do that with that but in this situation i felt a lot of sympathy because a couple of weeks ago when when this started to get a bit of a snowball in 
the wrong direction. It was always the wrong direction, but you always felt like even when there was something going on, you thought it's the club's internal investigation. Or at least I did. I thought, all right, I'll just wait until it concludes. Everybody was saying on the same thing, you know, it's better dealt with sooner rather than later. But at the same time, I, as, as a supporter and someone completely independent of process, still thought, thought it will take as long as it's going to take. You know, and then as long as they arrive at the right decision, which we all agree was the right decision of him not playing for the club again and moving on, then I was quite comfortable with how long it took to get there because it wasn't just a case of, hey, there was a criminal proceedings um, going on. There was the complication that came after that, which was, A, the case was dropped or withdrawn, and B, the position that that put, Greenwood in or and his representatives and his family as far as it came to negotiating with Manchester United as you can see with some of the terminology which I'll I'll come to in a second and the reason why I'm I'm saying this in sympathetic terms is because it is unmetered territory they hadn't gone there nobody had gone there so yeah okay Richard Arnold was going in there on his own and he's sort of dealing with it it's very hot potato very difficult yes okay there was a very logical answer but at the same time there's a lot of sort of things to go through and we weren't privy as as much as it seemed straightforward to us we weren't privy to all of these things that were being said obviously from the greenwood side and they were dealing with this from february right so february to august six months time and they're constantly saying there's such and such obviously there's been some kind of protestation of innocence in there from greenwood towards the club so the club are kind of dealing with that as well and they sort of saying no this evidence exists blah 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 blah. and we don't know all the ins and outs of that we can only surmise that yeah. those kind of back and forths went on because of the, the the nature of the statements and the way that they were put out. Um, I felt a little bit of sympathy with when it did start to snowball recently because I felt some of the reporting, not from Adam, Adam was unbelievable the, the whole way through and there's nothing wrong with his integrity on this. Some of the yeah, other reporting... Yeah. That's completely um, wrong. One yeah. that said something yeah. to do with the, the women are going to be consulted and when the, the reason why it's been delayed. Yes. And that was unfair on United because that was never going to be the case. It was ridiculous to suggest that was the case. Yeah. And then Adam got hold of it and, and did what he did and, and that held the club, or it put them in, into an accountable position very swiftly. I'm not sure. I'm still not. And I know people are going back and forth on this and saying, and most people, 95% of people would say United were undoubtedly trying to get him in a position to come back. I'm still, I, I don't know if I'm just saying this because I, I want to feel the best for the club or I want to at least remain neutral on the de- decision that I still feel like there was a, a, a an element of explore every reasonable not avenue but like talk to everyone in the club at that point you know make sure that everyone all the major people who need to be consulted are consulted and there can't be any doubt about that part of it because every you know every story especially adam's reporting has certainly said that richard arnold went to all that extent to talk to all the different people and departments but yes okay yeah right but but i mean those conversations happened without question and he was talking about all the conceivable different things. Now, obviously, the unpalatable side of that is that one of the conceivable outcomes was that he returned and played for the club. Now, yes, okay, that puts into plan the idea that he would return, 
but yeah, I'm still yeah. not sure that that was 100% the plan. Although I know the other reporting now says there were the dates and everything that lined up for that. Fair enough. Fine. I, I'm not. I'm not contesting that because Adam's reporting has been excellent. I'm just thinking. I, I don't because that it wasn't. It wasn't made formally public. It wasn't announced publicly. I don't. I I don't know whether how true that is, Wayne. I mean, it, it seems that there was a whistleblower. Yeah. Uh, pretty senior because they were privy to the plan. Um, I don't know who Adam, but uh, I've got some thoughts. Uh, um, and that's how it all got out. And effectively, the executive team were told first that this was their uh, their choice. Now, they were in any kind of crisis situation. They'd had six months to plan for different outcomes. You know, and and, they, and this is where we know there, was, there were potentially mooting ideas about loaning him out. Um, I'm sure they explored... The potential for sacking him once the criminal case had been dropped that became harder they probably thought about um, just paying up his contract it's not that much really in the grand scheme of things and just letting him go which would have been the easy way out non-prejudicial we'll just buy or bring him back fully and 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 it seems like the executive team and the football side of things were were happy to bring him back fully and yeah. and they were trying to then enact that thing the the just a just a few thoughts on like this this consultation piece. Like the the two people they didn't consult, two groups. They may have talked to internal groups. Two groups they didn't consult were the fans, because that came right at the end of the fans forum meeting, after the fourth of August, uh, and the the women's support charities who they deemed hostile, according to Adam. Crafton's reporting and and at no point did they talk to these two groups in the past six months and I think that was a mistake and and the reason why I said it was a case study because this outcome was really predictable like that that there would be a backlash and they'd have to do the um, and I was never a few people in socials and a, a few people I know were saying oh yeah. you know like if you if you listen to the socials people um, that up in arms about it and look what happened with Ronaldo because you know there there was a confessed rapist back at the club because he'd written it down and we knew all of that but it wasn't as visceral you know we didn't have the audio or the pictures and uh, and and I just thought that's you can't get away from that we are visual to, uh, and and audio is right in your ears and it's just too visceral to to not have a, a reaction and the United fans reaction and the media reaction and politicians and charities getting involved was just like as soon as that happened, I knew there'd be a U-turn um, because of just how how strong the reaction was against it. But I think that was predictable, and that's why I'm, I think it was it was yeah. it was so such a bad mistake on the club's behalf to think that they could somehow you know get their way through it. It's like a plane and the uh, the you know the carrier comes along and says. Ah, oh, the wind blew a bit, or there was a bird in the way, or you know, it was unavoidable. The 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 weather was too bad, or something like that. It's not what anyone wants to hear. Yeah, that I, I it's difficult to sort of correct decision was taken, and you know, there was never any. I think you're completely right. What I would say is that maybe if you'd had David Gill in charge, or Martin Edwards, or someone before that who got a long experience of knowing, even even Ed Woodward. And I, I'm, I'm saying this in defense of Richard Arnold, and I, and I realize that a lot of people will find that unpalatable, but hear me out on, on the way that I'm saying it. You can still, like, people can still be up in arms and demand his resignation. I'm just I'm ch trying to put a human sure, case yeah. across here. 
he wouldn't he wouldn't have been aware. I I don't even think that he would have been aware. I know he was around at the time of the Super League. He wouldn't have been aware of the kind of pressure that Woodward was under to sort of deal with that, and then he had to resign. Like for example, he wouldn't have been any he wouldn't have been aware of um, the pressure or the kind of profile of pressure when Cantona kicked the fan and the pressure that that put on the club or the B Sky B take home and that got aborted or, or the pressure at the time of the takeover and, and that, yeah. you know, in 2005 and how that all went across. Um, so to be, to say, all right, we, we anticipate a little bit of backlash and it, it might get political and there might be hostilities. Yeah, they're definitely 100% the wrong way to put those kind of things. But I think that's kind of like the naivety of not understanding like you said, how visceral that backlash is going to be because once, you know, we all understand it because we're fans and we, like you said, right from the start, when he was even suggested, oh, he's going to come back, I understood. I understood because I've been around the block supporting the club that the backlash would be too great and it would take on, and I actually wasn't expecting to be as big as quickly. I thought maybe that would rumble for two or three weeks, but it, it got a lot of steam very quickly and, and then it was rightly shut down. Um, what I would say is, again, just to close on this, the point I'm making with with Arnold is that imagine from his position, all right, it seems logical. The conversations he's having are 50% that logical side of everyone sort of saying, well, you might have got some people within the club who knew him and saying, oh, like, well, we've got a responsibility with him. And then the other 50% saying, oh, oh, probably larger than that 80% at that point, and that 80 90% saying we're not comfortable for the obvious reasons and then from the other side of the gate you've got the greenwood entourage you were kind of saying well he's innocent and he, he just wants to play for the club again and you've got a responsibility to us and those are the kind of conversations mm-hmm. that that he's in you know like that constant demanding of them being innocent and i'm not saying that i agree with anything in terms of the statements and, and things like that i'm not saying that i agree with the length of time that it took i'm just saying from his human position I, I get it, and but I do think it is to paraphrase Gianluca Vialli putting a learner driver in charge of a Ferrari, and it was the same. It was the same uh, with Ed Woodward as well, learning on the job, and and I, I do think that's part of the mistake here. It might well be, and I, I suspect there's a significant mm. amount of truth to this that like key decisions are actually taken out of the executive's hands because the uh, the owners and Joel Glazer in particular is quite hands on, and that is very unusual in normal business. You don't normally get that with a listed company where the executive and the board don't have decision-making powers. And, and you know, Richard Arnold, chief executive, he has significant executive power in a normal company and could probably make this decision. And in a normal company where you're talking about a quote-unquote asset that is uh, to pay off a contract, which is uh, a, a few fractions of 1% of the total value of the, the club, it wouldn't even be a second thought. I mean, for employees, it wouldn't be a second thought. It would be goodbye straight away here it was slightly different because in theory greenwood has a lot of value in the market in reality he doesn't of course and uh, there's no way united are getting a large fee for him right now so i I can understand why it was difficult probably in the background you've got the glazers who are penny pinching enough that they they say yes or no to equipment in the gym or repairing the swimming pool let alone let alone mm. potentially cancelling the contract of a in 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 good times a hundred million pound player so i kind of understand the difficult position who's in that said 
they made some catastrophic mistakes here. The length of time it took for an internal investigation, which, as we understand it, and I'm not privy to it, so I'm just like reading between the lines, did not include uh, talking to the complainant, yeah. victim or alleged victim. Did involve talking to her mother and then uh, Greenwood himself. And it seems to be an asymmetric investigation in which the majority of the evidence has come from Greenwood. And we haven't seen, they won't have seen the police interview that will not have been released. So there's that. There may have been more of that video that or audio that was posted and that we haven't seen. And they kind of suggested it in the statement that there's, there's kind of evidence mm. that we're not going to release to the public. And and I think the the biggest, the most catastrophic mistake, those are operational things, length of time, the how they dealt with the evidence, who they actually spoke to in gathering and making this decision, the pressures yeah. from the Glazer family and so on. The biggest one was to make the assumption that we would trust them. We fans would trust them. He's saying, hey, just believe us that there's evidence here that like what you've seen and heard with your own eyes is not the truth, the full truth. Uh, and context, the full context, I think, as they said in the statement, and there's something else out there. You just have to trust us and believe us that this is true. And that we're not just being an awful, cynical football club just out to maximise the the value of our asset or the results on the pitch. And that there's something more there. And what about the last 18 years says that we should trust them? There's just absolutely nothing. And I think that was the biggest, most catastrophic mistake and it's one of the reasons why not talking to the fans until after effectively the decision had been made was was so bad. Because if they'd gone in March and said, hey, fans, what do you think? You're, part, you're an important part of this community. Yeah. I think they'd have got a very honest reaction at that point. And I, I suspect that they'd have behaved very differently and they wouldn't have brought all this on themselves. But anyway, that's, that's my view. A lot of this is conjecture, I realise, because we're not party to this. We're not on the inside. Yeah. We don't really know the full truths. Yeah, even Adam Crafton, who's you know, an amazing scoop there, who's got a whistleblower inside the inside the club. He won't have the full picture because he's just got the, the what the executives were trying trying to do. Anyway, what a what a mess. Let me just my my last thought on it is just to clarify all the sort of like preceding ramble as well is that I, the way that I'm phrasing all that is to demonstrate some kind of sympathy for. Everyone no, right. being involved in the collateral fallout of this because everyone, like because Richard Arnold, regardless of like, people's opinions on how he handled it, was not the perpetrator. He wasn't the culprit. He, he was he was given a very difficult thing to deal with, and everyone quite rightly is going to have their opinion on that. The staff who worked with him growing up and people are criticising. Oh, it's the environment which raised him and all sorts of that sort of stuff is not good for United. Um, and it's not fair on those people because the culprit is one person and everyone knows that those values really don't represent anything to do with the football club. Um, they don't represent really anything that we as fans associate with the club and anyone in a right mind who considered the evidence that we all saw would not want him to play for the football club again and we would quite That's active everyone, his yeah. name wasn't mentioned um, alongside the club but again and not bigger people have said made this about women and daughters and young girls and it's not it's about everyone really it is it's is principally about them because yeah, about women and, yeah. and daughters and girls and, and things like that because we don't want an environment where they don't feel safe 
first of all, in football, but in general, considering people's attitudes toward that, yeah, that behaviour, considering that he's brought out the worst of some people. But it's mostly, like I said, to every single person to to know that that's not acceptable and 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 it's really not. And I, the, the the reason why I'm clarifying that, and I know that I said at the top that everyone should hopefully expect that from me anyway. That I would feel that way is that I, I sometimes feel that when, especially here, because I know that it's quite a polarizing thing, and um, everyone on this podcast, we've all got really strong opinions of how we feel with things. Try and put across like a more human, not say that no one else is human. I'm, I'm trying to think from every perspective. There, there was a human involved in this, in lots of humans involved. But if we, if we we're talking about Richard Arnold, the, the lead. He seems like a fairly normal, down to earth guy you know i've worked with a lot of executives over the years i've never met richard arnold i don't know him i'd have had a few thoughts on advising him <laughs> for sure and but he seems to like you know he went down the pub he met some people some fans and he talked to them he seems like he's actually fairly in touch and not all executives at large companies are in fact quite a lot aren't and and so i i do realize the pressure on him will have been immense and especially over the past week or so built up to a point where the u-turn had to happen so no I, I i think i think that's fair when you remove that part though and you say yeah. hey it's about executive decision making i think he he's probably whatever the context of why it happened like this he's probably demonstrated that he couldn't make that decision and that's why you know i put out on twitter i think he should resign it's the only right thing to do and that's not him i, I maybe he's a really sound bloke and i love having a pint with him Oh, maybe he's a feminist. He maybe he's uh, he's got the same political values as me, you, whoever. All right? Who knows? Don't know. Don't know him at all. So it's not a commentary on that. I just think as a decision-making process and person, it wasn't. He found himself to be fallible. Valuable. Is that a word? <laughs> the opposite of infallible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, talking's hard, folks. Valuable. I think. <laughs> uh, amazing. We've got through <laughs> six hundred of these things. Yeah. There. All right. Anyway, we may find out more over this. We've got seven days of the mm. transfer window, eight days, I think. And then and then Turkey and Saudi Arabia go on for a bit longer than that. So if there I, I, and I don't know where else might be possible, but we'll yeah. get some clarity. <laughs> awesome. The other thing we had this week was a report by, by Custis in The Sun that the, the Qataris have won the bidding and that it will be closed out by mid-October. I, I'm going to say right off the bat, I think that is total, massive, steaming pile of bullshit uh, and completely wrong. We'll see if I'm wrong, <laughs> but I think this is, I think this was very conveniently timed. May just be, conven- may just be complete coincidence. Uh, and also we've seen this report loads and loads and loads of times over the last six months. So, but what, what were your thoughts on that? I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't know. If to generate... Um, I know a destructive spirit around something positive. The aliens come to Neil Custis. I don't think they would arrive. I, 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 I'm not sure if if that's a leak or if he's just uh, wrongly informed. It, it did make me laugh because obviously um, he comes out and he, he publishes a report, and then um, Cave on Sky he has to go and have his say. And he's just. I felt like when I watched it, I only watched the clips Twitter feed that. It was something that they'd done three months earlier because he said something like, "Oh, they won't go above five billion, and they're concerned the Glazers won't sell it all." And there was nothing for for whatever you think the nonsense of Neil Custis, and and I'm not here to discourage anyone 
from thinking Neil Custis writes something that isn't nonsense. Um, but there was a new element to the narrative of the story to say, well, there could be an announcement next month and it could be concluded. They expect to conclude it by October. Now, it could be completely fanciful, but at least it's a new direction yeah. to that part of the story, whereas Cave just goes on Sky and he says exactly the same thing that he's been saying for four or five months. Well, if you've got an ear, if you've got an ear in the Qatari camp yeah, and Sheikh yeah. seems telling you something, why isn't that something aligning or contrasting with what Custis has said? Yeah, so I'm not, uh, at least Custis has gone out there and if he said the wrong thing, he's just he's gone where the son of boldly gone many times before. <laughs> but the, so for Sky to sort of gone like, oh, do you know like you know, uh, not even to reference the fact that uh, acknowledge that the sun exists and roll bet the better for that, yeah, but it's reacting yeah. off the sun's report. So why not at least acknowledge the activity within that report to give us an update? Tell us it. Tell us it's crap if that's what you think. And, and he does. I mean, yeah, I, I'm with you. No news is no news, yeah. and the sun is as good as no news. So I don't think we are any closer knowing. Um, so I, you know, nothing to report as much as they want to think that there is something to report. I just don't think there is. It, it was interesting that the outlet was The Sun and a football journalist rather than... I mean, the Qatari camp have gone to the uh, Reuters and the FT um, quite a bit uh, and Bloomberg uh, and the yeah. Ineos came on to The Times repeatedly with their views on it. Uh, everyone's leaking all over yeah. the place. Uh, Rain have been to a whole bunch of different publications trying to create some jeopardy in the bidding process, which doesn't exist. Uh, you've got a value investor and then uh, a state bid in which they're sick of having their pants pulled down repeatedly and restricting the, the price as a result. It's You're right, in a sense, there's no news here. I, thought, I just thought it, was, it made such a big splash everywhere and people were commenting it, it moved the stock price about two percent but that's just speculation no, the market yeah, yeah, doesn't yeah. believe it because if you really believed it was done and dusted at between 32 and 35 dollars per share the share price should be up close to that because you're like well they're going to close out by october yeah. i will get a huge lift on like buying at 21 as it was before this report and getting 32 you're going to make a huge amount of money the market doesn't believe it, it hasn't moved yeah. that much it, there was a bit of short-term speculation that it will gradually slide back to to around 2021 as a share price over the next few weeks as we all realise that it hasn't been wrapped up and done and dusted. I'm beginning to suspect, and this is just a hunch, no information whatsoever. So, you know, uh, I, my uh, it's my chip paper. They don't even do it. You've been, you've been gone from the UK for so long, Ed. And... The, the, that's not even a thing. I'm so disappointed with you. That's like you have you've ventured into the territory when the sun might have once been reliable in the pre Hillsborough days, and they go, "Oh, okay. Well, they got one story right every so three weeks, and you kind of gamble on that ratio with your chip paper theory." <laughs> yeah. Well, no, it's totally throwaway what I'm saying, but to the point where they've said they've they obviously the, the family doesn't leak in this whole process. The only the only party that doesn't leak is the family, so they're obviously very tight. They've set a price at which they're prepared to sell, and that price has not been met. So I'd be surprised if we sale this year. And uh, given given everything else is happening, the uh, the club's reputation's a bit in the toilet as well. So uh, whether they want to you know, ride this out and. Wait another year, we'll see. But I kind of suspect that's going to happen now, and that we won't get a sale. Yeah, and the the I mean the reaction 
at this moment in time on the back of the way things have been. I know that there's a planned protest for Saturday. I guess we're going to talk about that. But the climate at the moment, they, they would be quite ill-considered to announce that they weren't going to sell yeah. uh, because there, there are stages of withdrawal and anger as supporters and there's a step after apathy and I think United fans are bubbling at the moment and they were placated a little bit by what happened on Monday. Um, but I don't think it's a very hostile time. It was, I mean, to, to be in no uncertain terms about it, it was a very, very dark week for the club. This has been very desperately yeah. um, dark. This so like the the days from sort of Wednesday to Friday to Monday were very, very difficult to be a United fan. I'm talking historically difficult. In my opinion, we're talking like sort of top, at least top ten. I don't want to think about where where it goes in in the rest in that term, terminology in the order there, but definitely top ten. It was very desperately dark I mean, and it seemed very grim so to be following that by quoting more of it I can't see that but yeah I think there is an element of me that since we got back into the Champions League mm-hmm. and since that sort of alleviated a little bit of the financial burden in the transfer market and that there was a little bit more movement and now we're seeing no movement it does indicate that I'm a bit I'm surprised that, that I mean, I, I'm not surprised that you called it out because you're on the ball with stuff like that. I'm surprised that no other journalists have sort of followed that track a little bit and sort of, mm. you know, talked about it a little bit more because I, I guess that that would have been the thing that might have pushed the needle Yeah, yeah. For to to inflate a little bit more pressure, but it's just not happened and um, it'll probably take until another difficult season. Yeah, well, it's going to be great when they take the dividends yeah. out, isn't it? Yeah, that'll be well. They will have done it actually, because it will have. It probably would have happened in June, yeah. and we'll get the yeah. financial results in. I don't know when the next when the, like probably the end of the quarter. So maybe in a couple of weeks' time. I forget the timing of it. Okay, let's take over. Then we got we got Forest on Saturday, three o'clock on a Saturday. Yeah. What madness is this? I think it's three o'clock on the Saturday, isn't it? Yeah, we got. Is it not the first of four in a row of those? We've got a few in a row, like Palace and Brentford. And I'm pretty sure Palace and Brentford are Saturday, three o'clock. Forest, I think they're a little bit more settled than. I mean, they were so routine, the wins over them last season. I can't see that being the case this time around, partly because United are in a little bit of a, a bind. But secondly, because Forest look a little bit more stable. And that's a famous last words. Well, they didn't bring 20 players yeah. in this summer, did they? So. Exactly. So it looks like, and they look like sensible signings that they're building on something. But you always see that with teams in the second season that they they feel look like they're building towards something. And yeah. Then they'll have like a they might have a drop off at some point in like November, and then it's very difficult to claw that back. And they 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 are very much the kind of team that could be like that. But they finish the season quite strongly, and I feel like there's an element of that. I, again, whenever he says stuff like this about a team that's been promoted or a smaller team in the league, it sounds terribly con- condescending. But that, like, there's an element of free hit about it. But like, Wolves came to Old Trafford and it was like there was a free hit, and they played so well. And maybe even Spurs a little bit because they yeah. were playing at home. It's the first game without Kane, a couple of days after losing him, and it's like, oh, nobody knows quite what to expect, and. And they went out and put on a fox. We didn't know what to expect. We were like, oh, how did Spurs play without Kane? And, and that's how they play. They play 
actually quite well without him. And when that kind of scenario again, where people aren't really going to be expecting Forrest to do anything and all the expectations on United and there's a lot of expectation on, on that squad at the moment and on the team for them to turn up and put in a performance. Now kick it on. And man. I don't, uh, it's difficult to look at them because they, they, you know, they don't look like they're handling that because they, there's definitely uh, an expectation from the back end of last season that we're now saying, all right, well, you've won a trophy, you definitely kicked on from the previous season. Now you've got to do something better. And for a lot of that, it looks like it's going to be a difficult yeah. step for those players to take. And no, that's understandable, fair enough. But it's not easy to watch, do you know what I mean? It's very difficult for them to watch. And it's difficult, and I know Mason Mount's going to be missing, and that might be a bit of a blessing for him, because it's been difficult to watch him to sort of bed into that environment, because people yeah. probably quite rightly expect spectacular things of him. And it's been there's been teething problems in how that's going to settle down. We don't really know yet. It looks like it's a conflict in position with Bruno. Hopefully that gets settled. But it's it's probably a good thing that he's missing from the game because he's he's a very typical example of yeah. how difficult it is for those players to sell down at the moment. Even like Rashford and Shaw, who've been there for a long time, the pressure on them to sort of now get out of this funk where they play well for one season and poorly for another. They've right. started this season under that weight of like everyone is looking at like there are a lot of critics that even though they played well last season, there are still the critics saying to, you know about those players. Oh, are they going to come good or are they going to have another stinker? I mean, I agree. Rashfordshire and Mount, three you picked out there, both had really bad games and uh, two bad games. And and Rashford, he just he doesn't look comfortable in that central position. Every time I said on this pod in years past that I thought maybe he could turn, turn into a number nine, I was clearly wrong. I just don't, it doesn't doesn't feel natural to him. He's it's just well, the stats say it. It's so it's so clear. He's twice as dangerous. When he's coming off the left, he likes the ball in front of him, likes to attack players. And and so that's obviously being a, a bit challenging for him without Martial, without Hoyland. Hoyland, who might well make the bench in this game. Let's hope we see a little bit of him. That would be nice. And and sure, you're right. He's made a mistake, didn't he? Got out of position for, I think, the first Spurs goal. Mm. And I may be remembering that wrong. But oh, uh, it right. didn't look like his old self. He needs yeah. Malassia back to put pressure on him, which is never but to, to need someone to put pressure on you. And and Mounts, yeah, the difficulty there is Ten Hag's brought him in to do a job he has really never done in his career, which is play an eight. And even if it's like a double eight system with Bruno, they've clearly been getting in each other's zone, as, as you mentioned. And, and it's been a kind of slightly awkward. And I really, 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 really hope, and I've said this a couple of times on the pod, that Ten Hag's solution to that is not to play Mount at 10 and Bruno wide. I really hope that's not the case because I think that's yeah. crap. I hope it's Mount learns how to play eight as it is for this weekend. Either Ericsson comes back in or, or maybe he can turn to Scott McTominay, I guess. He's barely... I don't know if he's seen a minute of football so far. Has he? I forget. Yeah, he came, he came on for the back end of the Wolves game. Yeah, yeah. It was centre forward. So Good stuff. Yes. So, so I mean, I'm, I'm guessing the Mount's injury means McTominay's not going to get sold because we need the numbers because Kobe Mainu is, is unfit as well. And so we're just desperate. And Fred has been sold. So really short in midfield again. Yeah, it's, I, I would. I would want Ericsson to start. I think he, you know he's the. There has been settlement in United's midfield when he's come on 
to whatever degree that's been. It's, it's been not great to better than not great, <laughs> which is, I think, probably the best way to dis- the most positive way to describe United's season so far. Um, so when he's come on, he has made a positive difference. So it would make sense to start him um, because United need we'll help more, more yeah, importantly yeah. than anything. They need to get rid of them in the performance back. Yeah. And Ericsson is quite good at doing that. He, he, he certainly against Forrest at home, that should be a. If you can't. If, I know that there's a question mark, and I think you're dead right um, that you've said a few times about him starting in most games now in the Premier League, especially now we've got Mount. But if you can't start against Forrest at home, with all due respect, without sure. wanting to be condescending, should you really be at Manchester United? And that should be the base level for any player in the squad anyway. So that's why I thought, like, maybe this is a good... Oh, it was a... It was a comp- he needs some minutes too. Yeah, it, but I think a, a few players do, and I, I wish that... Not I wish, I, I don't think that strongly about it, but I feel like maybe the Premier League or United are missing out on a bit of a trick. You know, because there's obviously going to be a fixture backlog at some point and fixtures will get postponed. There's been two midweeks here that they could have easily used to sort of get the players playing games. And the Forest one, I feel like if that was in midweek, um, it's like to say if it was Wednesday, just gone. Then if Tenog had made four yeah. or five changes, people would have just said it's just usual rotation because the games are coming around a bit quicker and you need to get the players' minutes. Whereas if he makes those changes, if he drops Anthony on on Saturday and puts Palestri in, which he could well do, and, and Anthony couldn't have any complaints. If he drops Garnacho and puts someone else in, if he drops Shaw and puts... It looks like he's dropping players rather than putting giving other players minutes. And um, I, that, I know that sounds like I'm, I'm griping at the fixture calendar for criticism that Tenog's going to get. I just think it's not really helped United in this scenario. It would have probably helped us if we'd had a couple of games. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And part of it was pre-season. It was kind of slightly weird, wasn't it, pre-season? Had all those games, but... Players weren't really getting more than 60 minutes ever, and it feels like they're a little undercooked as a result. And I think that's why they had the game against Everton last week and the game against yeah. Burnley just on Tuesday this week, just to try and get some players some minutes, especially around the fringes of the squad. Yeah, I think that's part of yeah. the reason why the, the beginning of the season hasn't been very good. They're just not quite as sharp as they could be, given how pre-season went. Uh, but yeah, it's a really important game. You know, like We would definitely be in crisis yeah. territory if... If uh, well, United always one game away from a crisis on the pitch, aren't they? But uh, if Forest were to win at Old Trafford, there would be uh, it would be a problem. But you know, they they played quite well against Sheffield United Forest, and and I, I do think they they you're right, they're more settled now, and they've got a good manager. They weren't bad against Arsenal, you know. Langer did very well for the goal, you know. Right. So it was they weren't terrible there. So if they can go to Arsenal and give them a game, then they can certainly do that at Old Trafford. They they haven't got the world's greatest keeper Dean Henderson because they didn't do a deal with United for for Dean who may or may not be staying. It's unclear at this moment. Bought Matt Turner from Arsenal instead. Uh, who's a decent keeper? Not oh, a brilliant keeper. He's a decent keeper. But hey, I guess if you yeah. want to pony up the money for Dean Henderson, world's greatest keeper. World record fee. World yeah. record fee for. Yes. I'll say it again: the world's greatest keeper in his own mind. <laughs> It is, a, it is a bit of a difficult one for United with a few of those players now because we're seven days, as at the time of this recording, seven days from the end of the window. And, you know, you said McTominay, there's Maguire. Yeah. And obviously Henderson. Martial as well. This Martial, right. Yeah. So you're talking like five five or six senior players who could easily move on and 
a lot of money to be sort of moved around in. I mean, not tons, but five or six players of that nature, you could be talking around 70 to 80 million pounds, yeah. which United could really do within the transfer market. And the quicker that they do receive that in, the better equipped they are to not go and get someone that they will be scrabbling around for on deadline day, yeah. you know, like Maran Fellaini. Like the players that we've. Yeah, as anyone is that, I suppose we could put this out to the followers or the listeners of the pod. Like, what is Fellaini up to? He's got to still be playing. I can't imagine that he's is, retired just yet. Is he still in China? I, I had no idea. We'll find out. Yeah. Someone will tell us. I'm sure of that. But yeah, I mean, and the thing is, we've was it Fan Power last season? Was it Arnautovic or something? Oh. Whether we were in for Arnautovic and Rabio, and it's kind of like, no, don't get them. The fans kicked off, and then it was Anthony and Casemiro instead. It was like, okay. We didn't want Arnautovic because he's a racist, and Rabio because his mum's a nutter, or yeah. or just a hard negotiator, I should say. Yeah. Amrabat's <laughs> uh, all right, though. I, I like Amrabat. There are things, there are concerns about his. I think he's a bit quality ceiling. Yeah, but, I think he's a bit lightweight, yeah. but he he looks nice on the ball. He's a good passer. He's a good passer of the ball. I just I just yeah. wonder whether he's actually an upgrade on Fred. I feel like in the last couple of pods, I've praised Fred more than I had in the previous five years. I'm suddenly, I'm suddenly missing him. Yeah, it's you. Yeah, I think that's it. Like it was a, he started quite well, hasn't he? Like over there, yeah. he scored a good goal the other yeah. day, and it's kind of like, oh, oh, we're watching YouTube Fred again, yeah. and now you're watching YouTube Fred, and you can see what YouTube Fred can do when you know ninety minute Fred, magnificent volley with his right yeah. foot. I used ruled out, by the way, for I think off an offside, which was ridiculous. Was it? Oh, well, I didn't. I didn't. Yeah, yeah there you go. But should've, it was a cracker. Paid attention to the full clip. Zidane against Leverkusen yeah. in the Champions League final. That was cracking stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Fred. Well, that's how he was doing that. So not that level stuff. Uh, Shakhtar. Yeah. That was the kind of play that we thought we were getting, and now he's free from the shackles of Old Trafford to to go and do that again. So. Yeah, as long as he's good, as good as Fred, whoever we bring in, then um, we've taken one step to the that's side, true. and that's all, all we can ask for. All right, <laughs> very good. What a what a fun conversation. Uh, Mason Greenwood take over your your trip around the darker reaches of Manchester, nearly getting your head kicked in for taking video to the local. You can be careful there, Wayne. Uh, that's investigative journalism. Yeah, well, I mean, that is checking out a piece of piece of uh, United history. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, it's the, as a, in a safer bubble as it can be, driving around New and Heath. And ending, obviously, like I started with a threat of getting my head kicked in and ending with one because of the violence that you might bestow no, upon me. never. You know, you're not a violent I man, not. I know that you know. I am not. I know you wouldn't do that. Before we go, uh, my conversation with Simon Lloyd, whose new book, United with Dad, is just out. Uh, it's a really interesting and fascinating reading to both United's history and his uh, relationship with his dad difficult read at times but here's my conversation with simon and and we'll catch you after the weekend's four nil victory against forest this week i'm chatting to simon lloyd whose new book united with dad was out recently simon welcome to the pod thanks for having me yeah real pleasure i i managed to get through this book in one sitting that's good i think yeah, I just powered through it on my phone. Wow. Uh, it's That's a really going. interesting book. It's partly 
an homage to your dad, partly modern history of United as seen through his eyes and partly about the relationship between father and son and what football means, I guess. I mean, what was the inspiration for writing the book? You've summed it up quite nicely for a start. A couple of things, really. One, as we'll go into more detail later, my dad was obviously terminally ill for quite a long time, really. And I became a father myself in 2017. And I became acutely aware as time went on that my son, Ethan, who's now six, wouldn't really have a lot of time with his granddad. So I had it in the back of my mind. I wanted to do something that would kind of tell him a little bit about his granddad when he got older and old enough to ask questions, really. And the logical way of doing that was was to do something about United because it was the thing that our relationship, me and my dad, that is, our relationship was built upon, really, was, was that connection to United and going to the games. I don't think I really thought I was going to write a book at any point, but I, I was going to write something and not necessarily something that was going to go on sale either. It was going to be something that was just for him. But my dad passed away when Ethan was two and a half, just before, yeah, probably quite close to his third birthday, actually. About a month after that, I went back into work. I was working for Joe Media at the time. And first day back, and I just boshed out an article, thousand words, and it was basically called United with Dad. And it was just basically me trying to process what had happened, but in word form. And luckily, my editor at the time kind of allowed me to do that. And yeah, he had a really good response. So when that had settled down a bit, that kind of, that was when the, the seed first started to grow, really, that I could fuse the two ideas together and get something that was a bit more permanent that could maybe help other people as well. Yeah. Yes, I mean, it sounded, well, at least from the book, like that was a very difficult end to his life, both for him personally and for you as a family. The descent into sort of almost not recognising the family because of the dementia and the cancer that took his body as well. But, But also a time for you to reflect back on your relationship with him and going to football, which... Obviously, the, the books, I should say, the book spans a really long time period from the 50s yeah. when he first started going to the 2019, 18, when he passed away. And it's sort of told through both the prism of you know, important games and seasons and moments and memory and also your your sort of ongoing relationship with your dad at the time. You know, how did, how right. did you put that together? I mean, it's a, it's an interesting way of sort of constructing the, the narrative. Yeah, it was a very, very difficult decision, that, because as you've just said, it spans a long time. I think that for this to really appeal to a lot of United fans and to formulate a, an accurate picture of my dad, it had to include like his early experiences as well of going, because he, he went, he first saw United play in the mid fifties before, before Munich, it was absolutely obsessed from moment one. And as you'll know, if you've read the book, my dad grew up in a pub. My, my grandparents had a pub just literally right next to the railway line to Manchester and Liverpool, about 10 miles out of Manchester. There was a train station at the top of the pub, which meant that my dad had access to Old Trafford quite easily on a match day, which was perfect for him. And I think that those early experiences shaped a lot of who he was as a person and what, what mattered to him in his life. And I felt like I had to get that in. Now, the difficulty was trying to fuse all that together with what I was trying to say about the other end of his life. But So in the end, I settled on alternate timelines, really. So mm. I had one which was my dad at the start of his life and gradually getting older. And then that was kind of interspersed with the last two years of his life and the, the experiences we had. Because a lot of a lot of his decline, especially with those last two years, I kind of charted at Old Trafford going to the game with him because that was the only real time only real quality time we really got together was was going, you know what it's like when you get a bit older and you don't 
you've got kids yourself. You don't yeah. really have a lot of time to just nip in and see them. So those two, three hours that I got Saturday, Sunday afternoon, whenever it was, that was my quality time with dad and when I started to notice things really. So that was the challenge really. But as time went on, it, it kind of changed a bit when he stopped going to the games and was no longer able to and the dementia started to really like kind of become more severe, more pronounced. That was the United connection there kind of took on a bit of a different meaning. Yeah. There's a few sort of really nice passages where you describe the the scene, which will be very familiar to people who spend a lot of time at Old Trafford. Familiar faces you're sitting around, the sweary yeah. lads who have a go at the referee, even though you're, I think mm. you're, you're sitting on tier two of the, the North Stand, so, so Alex Ferguson. Yeah, stand, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Not quite up in the gods, but far enough up. That, uh, yeah, the referee it's not quite as hostile as other parts of the ground either, but you know, it's, yeah. you always had the characters, don't you, are quite like target the referees. Yeah. And uh, and how, how does this sort of relate to your, your early experiences of going as well? Because there's, there's a nice kind of bookend to the, the story of you going, him going with his dad the first time, you going with your dad yeah. for the first time and you taking, and, and you almost like kind of walking him out of the ground the last time he went to Old Trafford as well. So there's some, there's some parallel lines there. Yeah, I mean, I, those early experiences, I think, like, you, I know it sounds really cliche, and I think I say that in the book itself, but if you end up going regularly, you always, no matter what happens, you always remember that first sight of the pits, don't you? And mm. my dad, I think, had waited for a long time to have an excuse to go regularly because, he, he, as the book says, he, he went as a young lad and, and right up until, like, the... 70s really was really he had a bit a brief hiatus where he couldn't go because family life and mm. other things got in the way which sometimes is the way with life isn't it but towards the 90s when united were just starting to come into that really amazing period they had I, I was at an age where i was just taking interest in football my dad was waiting he was obviously trying to encourage me and drip feed me like programs that he brought back to the game he was dying for me to start going and obviously it took me to my first game and I, I talk about this in the introduction where my dad, we just had this lovely moment and it, it stayed with me for years. At the times I probably didn't understand it, but looking back, I do. We got back to the car and it was a November game against Ipswich Town and it was midweek, it was a school night. I was absolutely knackered and uh, it was nil nil. It was an awful game and there was snow in the air, really, really cold. And we parked on some like scrap of wasteland somewhere in the middle of Trafford Park. Mm. I'm not exactly sure where it is now. Because when you first go there, it's like a labyrinth, isn't it? It um, is. Kind of, kind of place you pay a couple of lads five quid to make sure your car's still yeah. got wheels on afterwards, yeah. 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 And I just remember my dad opening the car door and saying, is that it now? Are we, are we going to go next week? And the week after that, is that, are we in now? And my dad had just grinned. And as I say at the time, I don't think he understood it. But I think looking back now, yeah. that was his him thinking, yes, I've got him. And he had the excuse to go back regularly. And those early memories... A lot of it at that time, because you, you're getting used to it, it kind of blends into one. So you don't have any specific memories of what the game was, apart from one or two exceptions. But yeah, it just, it obviously went a long way to building the relationship me and my dad had mm. over the years that followed, and certainly for what happened towards the end. So. All, all the anecdotes in the book about his early life of going to football, and he played football semi-pro level as well, and that's kind of weaved throughout. How did you go about pulling those together are those tales he told over the years that you remembered were you thinking about like recording this for because it's like the book is part yeah. memoir as well really yeah no I, yeah it's a good question i know i probably should have said this in the first question you asked me before but i think 
from what I said to you earlier on about how I'd had the idea about wanting to put things together for Ethan when he was old, my son, so that he had something to look back on. I was making notes. There's actually a book I've got on my shelf behind me in Warrington Town when he used to play for them because that's who he played for and that was his hometown club. So he's very proud to play for them. So there were little bits of information I could get through that. And a lot of the games that are referenced in it and his early memories were just built upon stories he told me in the car on the way to games. Because <laughs> I think like probably a good 60, 70% of the conversations we must have had as adults were about United, right. about his memories and about various things that happened. So it did get to a point where I did jot things down as well, because I thought one day I would like to put this in some kind of like tangible book that I can pass on to my kids one day when they're a bit older. So that kind of helped a lot when it came to putting it into a book form as well. You got some favourite memories of games that you visited with your dad? Yeah, obviously the first game. Um, I think... I referenced this in the book as well. One of the, my favourite ones is my dad, like, he was very set in his ways about things and he used to get really hurt by people leaving early. Yeah. Which, you know, anyone who's been to Old Trapper on a Max day, I'm not judging those that do leave it early. It is a nightmare getting out, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. But my dad hated that. He was absolutely furious. And the idea of spending so much money, and like, even through getting battered, I can remember, like, sitting there when, United were getting convincingly beaten at times. And my dad was like, no, nope, I paid so much money for this ticket. We're not going anywhere. And like, I don't know why, but the event is semi in the Champions League in 99, when obviously Conte had scored for them. And a fella, probably about 15, 10 minutes to go, decides to get up and go, obviously beat the traffic. My dad was probably a bit miffed as well, because obviously the European Cup meant so much to him. Yeah. A lot of that generation of supporters really. The fact that United looked like they were probably going to be going out at that particular moment, I think it all came together and he started having a bit of a go at this bloke. And that wasn't really my dad's character, but because this guy was leaving early, he decided to just vent his anger at him. So moments like that stand out. And that's kind of like the theme of the book, really. It's not necessarily like the big goals. It's not necessarily like the games that everyone else remembers. It's little moments that happen at inconsequential games that you know don't really mean anything to anyone else now. Like I've just mentioned there, like nil-nil against Ipswich yeah. in November 1993. No one remembers that, but to me, that game's really special because of obviously the associations that are tied to it. Yeah. Do you think you're going to pass it down from granddad to dad to, or your granddad to your dad to you, to your kids now? I hope so. I mean, I, I talk in the book as well about my granddad, my dad's dad. The irony is he, he wasn't yeah. massively into his football at all. He was more a cricket fan and... To him going to Old Trafford was watching Lancashire play or one of the tests and he strangely like around the mid 60s suddenly started getting into going to United with my dad and my dad at the time couldn't really understand it he thought it was a bit strange and he, he just put it down to George Best because he, he got so used to so many people that were normally there at Old Trafford on a match day going to watch Best that he just assumed his dad just wanted to go and say he'd seen it himself and Years later, when my granddad got quite poorly with Parkinson's disease, my nan, his mum, basically told my dad that the reason he did that is because you'd left home by then and he realised the only time he got to spend with you would be by going to the football, which was quite a nice theme to tie in with, obviously, what I was talking about and the situation I find myself in now where my uh, Ethan's on about going to games with me now. It's a difficult one because it's a fine balance when you, a lot of dads will relate to this, that you don't want to impose yeah. your interests on them, do you? You don't want to push them into it and force it. Um, 
because Ethan, like, he's, he knows his own mind, even though he's six and a half. And I feel like if I did it too much, he'd say, right, I support Liverpool or City. And he'd probably then be put on eBay. But it, it's that sort of thing, isn't it? Where you, 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 there's a balance to it. You don't want to put too much pressure on them. But he is taking an interest now. And we had some lovely moments towards the end of last season, actually. Got to a couple of games, the Wolves game. And it was one where mm. it was quite delicately poised until the last few minutes to win it 1-0. And Ganacho broke away. And he'd been to other games before then and seen goals. This one was the first time I was like really aware of him watching like the build-up and he could see the player getting nearer and he could see that the chance was coming and moments like that where we're like celebrating together were, were really nice and something that I thought, yeah, he's actually it, he's getting there now. Almost a, a bit yeah. similar to what I was talking about with that before that. I've got him moment where he's, where he's actually taking an interest and it's crystallising into something. So I've got three, 18, 10 and 6. And yeah. I've found it quite a struggle getting them into football. And, and I, I totally resonate the, this idea of not pushing it on them too strongly. The 10-year-old is into games. He has shown almost no interest yeah. in football at all. So it's you don't pull out some kind of weapon and shoot someone in, in football. So uh, that's really difficult. Yeah, but, yeah, exactly. Yeah, not well, yet, yeah, yeah. You know. But the younger one is... If Saudi Arabia have the way, yeah. he, might, he might go that way. You well, know. exactly. There may just be a moment that sparks interest and the the youngest one is now doing as they call it here soccer so he's showing some interest i think i may be able to drag him to something yeah, yeah. obviously we now being away from from england getting to old trafford will be more difficult but and and yeah. honestly the sounders are terrible so uh, <laughs> it may not be that, but yeah. I had taken down to the supporters club. Well, he's been with me, actually, the, the younger one. So, But that, that kind of connection really does matter, doesn't it? It's something, as you say, something to, to you know, an excuse to have a conversation, a reason to spend time with people. Yeah, and so much the match there, like, he, like you just touched on there, it's not about the actual 90 minutes of football. Yeah. It's about like yeah. the journey there and the things you talk about on the way and just, just spending time in each other's company. And that's what... Obviously, like my dad's thing towards the end of his life, before things got too much, was that he really wanted to go to an yeah. end Ethan and he never quite got there. And I'd like to think that it'd be lovely if Ethan develops anything like the kind of passion I've got for it, just because my, my dad would have loved that. And even though he can't be there to witness it, I think it's something like, there's something very powerful about being able to go to a place and say, oh, that's where your granddad used to stand when he was 10. So that'd be nice. But yeah, it's, it's not going too hard with it, isn't it? It's just making sure he forms that. Passion, and the other thing I think that really comes out in the book is 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 the connections, and everyone will resonate with this. It's this is this is it's not just about the football and the results. In fact, I think as you get older, which you reference as well, it's almost the results start to become yeah. secondary to the people that you've made connections with and the experience of going on the match day, and and especially now in times when. It's all about money and finances and big business and state ownership mm. and whether the the centre forward is a rapist or not and like all these things that we didn't want to have to talk about. Yeah, wow. Right? Yeah. So yeah. it's still about the connections between the fans. Absolutely, and, and that I thought about the the piece that I'd written initially that kind of like was part of the reason I'm following with the book and. The feedback I got to that and the feedback I got, the early feedback I've had for the book already, which has been like quite overwhelming really. It's been, it's been a lot of people referencing that relationship, whether it's with the dad mm. or whether it's with anyone else that 
go to a game with them because it is that. And I think like, as you do get older, it does become less about the winning and losing. Obviously, it's a lot better and a lot more enjoyable if you're winning, but it's not really what it's about. It's not really why you go, I think, the older you get. But then we would say that crap, after like yeah. 10 yeah. years of mediocrity. Yeah. So maybe that's no, just me being I mean, in there, there I are definitely know. passages that I, I really resonated with where you talk about the kind of stomach churning, nervous anxiousness, which through my teens and yeah. my 20s and 30s was a, like a real scent, like to the point where. You're not really sure whether you're actually enjoying the football because it feels so horrible. And nah. and, and then as, as I've got older, exactly that, that, yeah. that's a bit less. And it's not because I care less. It's just, I, I don't know, I have more perspective around it. And also, I have less expectations over the last 10 years about actually doing the winning. Yeah. But there's a, there's a chapter in your book or a, a piece in your book about the, the night in Paris as well. And that's right in the middle of your dad's sort of final yeah, yeah. stages of illness as well. Talk a little, little bit about that, because I think that's a kind of, it's an interesting time for you to reflect on yeah. things. Yeah, well, that that whole tie was, it was it was right in the thick of when, when things were just about the worst, really. My, my dad still, he went on to live for another seven or eight months after that, but the dementia, and a lot of people who know people in the family who've lived with dementia will know that sometimes it can manifest itself in the person who's living with it being quite aggressive and... That was kind of what was going on at that time. So the home leg, the Paris Saint-Germain game, my dad was in hospital at that time in Warrington and it was quite poorly. And I'd gone to visit him on the mm. day of the home leg, which is where they lost 2-0. And it, football then was, like it is for a lot of people, it was a form of escapism. It was just a way of shutting out what was going on with my dad. I'd gone to see him. The curtain, he was, on a, he was on a ward there, but the curtain was kind of pulled around him. I didn't quite know what was going on. And went in there and he just basically just came out with this volley of abuse, which just was not my dad was swearing and everything, which is anyone who knew him, he was a he was a, a deputy head teacher for a while and he was very like straight down the line and didn't really want to swear or use bad language and stuff, but he was he was really, really angry and directed a lot of that at me. So I, I had to go in the end. And basically I went to the game that night and then but my association of that game and that whole time was that and then the away leg came about a couple of weeks later and initially I planned on going. Things were kind of like spiraling a bit with my dad, and for whatever reason, I didn't think it was it was apt for me to leave the country while my dad was like that. So I settled in to watch it, and those that I'm, I'm sure not many people listening to this will will have forgotten it. But obviously, United had lost the first leg two 0 at home, and there was absolutely no chance of, of them passing through. And then gradually, things started to go the way they they took a lead. It went to one all, then they scored again, and then there was this ridiculous situation that even though they were playing uh, actual children at the end of it because they were so depleted with injuries and suspension, they ended up scoring the goal for Rashford. What had happened with me is I got so consumed with the game, I completely forgot everything. Like the outside world didn't matter. I was just in my living room and I was, I think I referenced this in the book, but I was basically rolling around on the floor. I was so nervous and it meant so much for those last few minutes as waiting for the penalties to be taken and completely lost myself. So the goal went in, Rashford scored and, and obviously went berserk, got told up by my wife for nearly waking up the little lad who was in the bedroom above. And then full time went and yeah, instinctively after that, I reached for my phone because the thing I always did when I watched the game away from my dad or a game on TV or if I'd been at a away game, whatever, I would ring him soon, as soon as you got out of the ground, just to have a quick chat, just to quickly debrief on the game and just enjoy that moment with him. And I was so swept away by what had happened. I'd forgotten that obviously I wasn't able to do that. My dad was in a hospital ward and didn't really know who I was anymore. So. Moments like that are, are quite difficult. 
Um, it still happens every now and then. You get that nanosecond where you think after a go, I'm in God. And, you know, obviously it's nearly four years now. I don't think that'll ever go away. And speaking to friends who've been in similar situations, I think it's something that a because lot of people experience to be shared. as well. And especially with the people that mean most. Yeah. Yeah. What, what do you think he would think of current modern United then? I don't think he, I mean, my dad despised like the, the commercial element of it. He accepted it was part of, of what the club had become. And I think he, he understood that what the club had become was because of that as well. He didn't like it. It was something that he never felt comfortable with. He always felt like it was a million miles away from what, what he'd grown up with, which obviously it was. Obviously the Glazer stuff, he was, he was like anyone was never really on board with that. And I just think that the last kind of conversations we had when he was like in a position to hold like meaningful conversations about it he was just very distraught about it really that he could never understand like a lot of us can't understand how it was ever sanctioned that a group of people could come along and buy a club in the way they did without really putting anything in themselves and basically create money out like they had done and it wasn't illegal yeah. what they did but it, that's what he could never completely fathom and how that was ever allowed so i think he found that difficult and as I say, like, it's strange really, because my dad, he used to go on a lot of holidays to Europe and stuff when we were kids. He used to have a caravan and we'd drive into the continent and it'd blow his mind that you'd go to these places in Italy and stuff on these campsites and there'd be kids there wearing United shirts and didn't speak English or anything. That used to blow his mind, that ends. And he understood that that came as part of this being this big brand, if you like, but I think it always like felt strange to him. And, as I say, the way it's become the last few years, I remember it. I don't think I put this in the book, but I probably should have done. I remember like, uh, weird on a max day, they had one of the little, little stalls that they set up outside. One of the sponsors, I think it was the, the, the official wine partner. And my dad had gone into this thing and Quinta Fortune Blessing was there. And he was like speaking to fans and my dad had a big chat with him. I remember my dad right. chewing his <laughs> ear off about basically the state of the club and this, this corporate stuff. And Quinton Fortune has just been really polite and trying to kind of diffuse the, the, the conversation and stuff. But my dad hated it. I uh, know. I mean, it... Dread to think what he'd think of it all now, but, you know. I mean, we're, we're of an age... Of him, I, I, I'm guessing you're not a, a, to see a few years younger than me, but uh, we're of an age where we kind of... We probably first started going just as the, the end of the sort of old era of football. So I, I started going in the 80s. And then really started going a lot mm. in the early 90s. That was kind of the time where I was going to games when my mum really didn't want me to, kind of thing. And that was just at the beginning of the era of commercialization. Yeah, yeah. But commercialization then was they founded a mega store and you could go in and buy stuff on a match day. And, and then there were two mega stores at Old Trafford and that, that kind of yeah. thing. And yeah. There was that really and, big one, uh, that wasn't there. I remember that. And now it's moved on where it's, it's global sponsorships and media and state ownership and private equity groups and and this kind of whole range of stuff that just feels completely alien. And it feels like it shouldn't yeah. be part of the game, but it is. Yeah. Yeah. And there's no escaping it now. And I mean, I, I guess the only way of escaping it is to get yourself a state ownership, yeah. which obviously is not, not the better alternative, if you ask me. But um, it's the nature of it now. I don't see it really changing. But it was just so far away from like the like the innocence of the first few days where yeah. it was just basically a, a team made up of predominantly local lads and obviously the likes of Duncan in that as well. And, yeah, that, I mean, is that, yeah, I mean, is that um, so far away passages from that? in the book where you talk about 
how your dad used to to wait for Duncan Edwards and uh, some of the other players uh, at a bus stop, and he'd go hours before the game to have a few moments of yeah. uh, walking along with the great man. You wouldn't see that today, really, not unless it was organised by sponsors. So yeah. I've got to say, it would be in association with Aeon or whatever it was, wouldn't it? Or some, whatever the official noodle partner is these days. But yeah, it's just so far away from that. And obviously, the idea that any member of the first team could set foot outside the ground on a match day without like being escorted in now is absolutely ridiculous, isn't it? But it was so commonplace then from what I can gather. And there was a group of kids that used to follow them along when they used to walk into the ground, but it was always respectful enough that they didn't really hassle them too much. It was just literally, as I say in the book, it was... My dad just following around, looking at them all star, uh, starstruck, but not really quite having the, the nerve to ask many questions. Excellent. Well, the book's out now. I know you had some distribution issues at first, but how's it doing with the sales? It's doing very well, yeah. I've been uh, pleasantly surprised because obviously it's uh, it's my first time doing this. I've never written a book before. So it's it tough. was, last time I checked, the best-selling United book on Amazon which you'll never sing that. <laughs> Try and start that one up in the Stratford end. Um, so it's been pleasantly surprising, but like, my motives for doing it were just, like I say, it wasn't really about making money or yeah. anything. No. It was just about having something for the kids when they're a bit older, but you know, it's it's intriguing to see how people are receiving it. Now, quite overwhelming, the feedback I'm getting early on with it, really, which has been nice, because yeah. it's not just like my nan telling me it's good, it's other people too, which is quite pleasing. Yeah, well, I think you will resonate with a lot of people, not not just because they went with their dads, but just their sense of community and belonging and uh, what that means. And obviously, it's a very personal story for you as well, yeah. clearly, and people will recognise that. So, yeah, no, con- congrats. It's uh, it's a good read. As I said, I turned in 20 pages in one sitting, <laughs> um, which was uh, yeah, a lot of fun. Fun. Fun's not the right word. I, I mean, it's a good, it's a, it's, okay. it's a good read, but it's, it's obviously <laughs> difficult because it's a personal, personal story for you. So you, know, you do feel like you're sort of spying on that uh, last few years of his life in a way. But yeah, congratulations yeah. on the book. It's got a fantastic cover as well by Stan Chow. Different style yeah. to normal. I think people will really enjoy it. Yeah, he was brilliant with that, by the way. He put in loads of effort into it. You know, he's, he's obviously everyone's familiar with his work now, but he was fantastic yeah. with that. Especially given the very vague pitch I gave to him of what I wanted to, he was he was wonderful with it. So, yeah, good stuff. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot for joining, Simon. Uh, United with Dad, out now. All good bookstores, Amazon and so on. Go, go grab a coffee and thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it.